0: are listening to a podcast from The National. For months, the headlines have revolved around the winding down of the Syrian war and what the next phase will look like. In April, US-backed and Kurdish-led forces retook the last of the so-called caliphate from ISIS in eastern Syria. Across much of the rest of the country, the regime has been consolidating control. But talk about the future has often overlooked the fate of nearly three million civilians living in the last rebel-held territory. It's now largely controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, a hardline group of extremists once affiliated to al-Qaeda. In recent weeks, the regime and its backers in Tehran and Moscow have turned their attention to the northeastern province of Idlib. Over 150,000 people have already been displaced and 100 civilians killed in a campaign that those who have fled fighting in Aleppo and Dera already say is as intense. I'll be joined by Zohair al a Syrian journalist based in the UK who's been speaking to families forced from their homes, as well as medical professionals trying to treat the wounded. We'll also be joined by Karim Shaheen, who's covered the war since the early days, to talk about the offensive, but also how it fits into the brutal tapestry of the eight-year conflict. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, James Haynes-Young, the National's foreign editor. And this week, we're talking about the battle for Idlib. Over the last few years, we've stood by and watched as the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad has encircled, bombed, and invaded the rebel-held areas of Aleppo, once the country's powerhouse, Dera, the southern birthplace of the revolution, and Eastern Huta, on the edge of Damascus. They've also retaken hundreds of towns, villages, and provinces across the country. In all the fighting, a typical format has emerged. The push to surround the area, an intense, indiscriminate bombing campaign that includes the targeting of hospitals and the starvation of local people. This all happens before ground forces are sent in and a street-by-street battle takes place until a deal is reached with the rebels, families and civilians trapped to be bussed to another area. But this time with Idlib, things are different. There's nowhere for people to be bussed to and the neighbouring Turkish frontier means the regime can't surround the region.
1: So Idlib is the last rebel-held enclave in, uh, in Syria. Uh, you know, the war has been going on for uh, eight years now.
0: That's Karim Shaheen.
1: Much of the country has been reclaimed by the Assad regime and his uh, Russian allies and Iranian allies. Um, and, uh, and what remains to be taken back uh, are a few enclaves of territory. Idlib is one of them. Uh, there's also the uh, areas in the northeast are under the control of Kurdish militias backed by the U.S. And the regime has been seeking an accommodation with them for quite some time, uh, as well as uh, parts of the country's north bordering Turkey that are under the control of Turkish-backed rebels. Um, Idlib by far is the largest uh, sort of contiguous and and more strategic piece of territory um, that the regime wants to reclaim. Um, Taking it back uh, will sort of solidify the narrative that the regime has won the war. Um, It's essentially clawed back um, almost all the territory it has lost um, over the course of the war. And um, and taking back, Idlib will sort of confirm this, uh, this military victory.
0: But some elements are the same. At least three hospitals and half a dozen medical centres have already been bombed, and hundreds of thousands already displaced. I asked Sahar al what's been happening on the ground this week.
2: In the last week, the, uh, the attacks have been intensifying gradually. And uh, the, the attacks, the, the warplanes and, and, and helicopters have been bombarding the, the countryside of Idlib with, uh, with hundreds and thousands of, of, of bombs. Uh, between airstrikes and bowel bombs and motor attacks, which have led to a uh, large displacement. And, and we've uh, seen
0: hospitals being bombed as well, between three and five hospitals, I believe now.
2: Precisely. The attacks have, have been targeting really vital facilities in northern Syria. Three major hospitals have been targeted and two medical points in uh, in Idlib, one of uh, in Idlib rural, uh, which have, have destroyed a complete can have destroyed completely those facilities and took them out of out of uh, service speaking yesterday to one of the uh, doctors in northern Syria, he said uh, he said to me that the the medical situation is is unbelievably out of out of control and i mean pa- patients are out of the street it's like uh, as as we as we wrote yesterday in the in the national it's like a judgment day where people we where people patients injured and doctors. Nurses themselves, they are like kind of confused where to go, where to take the the patients, and uh, the civil defense as well and other rescue rescue workers were working to transfer the patients as uh, the patients to like to local homes where they can initially just make sure that those people, those patients are safe enough, and then transfer them later on to medical points in near Turkish
0: near Turkish border. So there's been thousands of displaced people. Where are the, where are the people going?
2: The people are, not, are just taking their cars or take, right, taking a ride with, with uh, rescue workers or their neighbours or anyone they know, uh, taking their cars and just going heading towards the border, basically. They, there's no direction like, precise direction or, or any place for them to go. They just go through an open land or farms or the mountains just to camp. And wait until the attacks uh, calm or decrease its intensity, so they can maybe go back. And but this is literally the opposite. People, more people to these today, uh, in particular, there has been two large attacks, attacks against two villages in north, in south, in Idlib, where just public markets were attacked, and that led uh, that was followed by a large uh, civilian population leaving. Being displaced forcibly, being displaced from their homes.
0: Yeah, and one of the issues here, obviously, is that the the Turkish border is also closed to civilians, so people can't cross into Turkey where they'd be safe. Correct.
2: Yes, that's a that's another issue, though. Is not only that is closed. Anyone who is trying to get to, to to cross the border is being shot down by the Turkish police border. I mean, last last month, I guess, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there was a family who was shot on the, on the border. When one mother with her, with her six children. Uh, were shut down from the police from the Turkish police border one children was was killed and two other was injured and the mother as well and they were driven back to Syria so the border are completely shut down and no one you know, and people can barely and taking uh, can barely cross and if they take the initiative and try to cross it would be another dangerous uh, path for them to escape from the attacks
0: exactly so so we have a situation where thousands of civilians are are fleeing the fighting they're heading north, but they can't escape Syria, and so they're, as you mentioned, trapped in in open areas, in fields. Um, you know, yesterday we were talking about how uh they're, they're out in the open; they've got no shelter, um, few belongings. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a bit about the, yeah. the, what was the situation was for people you spoke to.
2: Yeah, precisely. I mean, people. I mean, uh, the uh, the Syrian observation uh, human for, for human rights based in London. He said that over than 300,000 people have been fled and all of them are literally scattered on the mountains and on the open lands and farms where there is literally nothing. Speaking yesterday, just a few of them uh, they were just saying that we're just sitting on, on, on the earth and there's a tree on top of them just sheltering them from the sun and they're just waiting uh there's just they're just waiting and uh, hearing not that not only waiting, just hearing that these attacks are, are getting closer to them, uh, like the, the attacks are chasing them somehow. Just yesterday, actually, there was a, an attack against near camp that was for for people who fled who fled from the recent attacks, and two or three civilians, I'm not sure yet, uh, were were killed, and other were affected, or they were were wounded. So those families have been said yesterday that they not only they're not having any shelters but they ha- they are being targeted where they are staying at the moment and can't 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 do anything they just can can can't escape Turkey, as we said can't go back home and just stay and waiting there, there for some for a miracle to happen and for the attacks to stop
0: yeah and these are also people that have been displaced previously from from other offensives to Idlib to begin with so these are people who have lost their homes and things several times over
2: yeah, that for sure. That's another thing, though. I mean, many, many of those who fled, uh, who fled already from from, from Aleppo, from Ghouta, from Dara city, uh, they spent since, uh, I guess, March last year. Uh, they spent. They they've got. They've got. They reached North Syria, and now they find themselves trapped, uh, like back to the same circle where they are being targeted intensively by the, by warplanes and barrel bombs. One of the one of the, the, uh, the displaced people of to yesterday, he said that is the attacks are, fled from Dara and uh, the, the attacks were just as intense as as they were in Dara, where the regime forces are like tried to launch these attacks last year and took over Dara, and now they fear that these attacks are are just a beginning for another wave of attacks and ground and ground offensive from the regime militant, militants and. And it's just for them unbelievable, uh, like we we just fled last year, hoping that we will find some peace in north syria and as as they were promised though because the, when they were evacuated, they were promised, yeah, you would go to north Syria, it would be for, uh just you just live your life, and no one will be affect, no one will be attacked once again so and now they are back to the same circle after one year almost from the the initial a displacement for those people, whether from Aleppo or Dara or Hota. And now they are fleeing once again, like for the second or the third time,
0: God knows how how many. That was Zaheer Shmeli. The region is also under a de-escalation agreement made last year between Turkey and Russia. The deal was meant to see hardline groups hand over heavy weaponry and pull back from the edges in exchange for a delay or a halt in the offensive. The problem is the deal was never fully implemented.
1: The de-escalation deal uh, was only going to be temporary um, and had only pushed the can down the road uh, because there was no real solution for Idlib. Um, The only possible solutions one could envision Idlib is the status quo, which it stayed as for about eight months. Um, For it to revert back to regime control, which was only going to happen after a, a massacre, uh, or for it to, you know, be ceded to Turkey uh, for uh, for months or for the for the immediate future, uh, which again was not an ideal solution for for anyone, um, for Turkey to occupy a part of Syria for the long term.
0: But there are laws of war and international conventions, but we haven't seen them being followed in Syria.
1: That's right, and and, and I mean, this has been a um, I mean, the, the destructive thing about the war in Syria. Uh, obviously, in addition to the civilian cost that has exceeded half a million uh, people. Um, is the fact that um, a lot of these uh, norms uh, that, that have been developed over uh, decades and uh, in some cases centuries um, have been er- have been eradicated? You know, I mean, the chemical weapons have been deployed without um, any real cost to the regime, um, even after it uh, declared its chemical weapons arsenal, um, uh, you know, uh, removed uh, after the deal uh, that was reached by the U.S. and Russia. Uh, it again used chemical weapons uh, in uh, in both Idlib. And in Eastern Ghouta, um, you know, the, the you, you only have to look at the scale of the attacks against medical facilities uh, over the course of the war to realize that uh, that they never really cared for any of this, um, for any of these laws of war. Uh, there have been 553 attacks at least on nearly 350 separate medical facilities. Uh, almost 900 doctors and nurses and emergency responders and, and medical personnel have been killed uh, in the course of the war. Some of them were tortured before they were killed. Uh, so a lot of these abuses have, in fact, formed a core part of the regime's uh, military campaigns, um, and they've not faced any consequences as a result of it. And I think a lot of um, you know dictators, a lot of um, uh, you know uh, uh, a lot of totalitarian regimes that are facing the threat of collapse will be watching this closely, and um, and will be learning a lot.
0: One of the things we've definitely seen through this war is a fatigue, both in terms of donations to NGOs and charities who are working to support Syrians, but also just in terms of people reading the news, people people watching the situation. There's not the same anger, uh, widespread anger, that there may have been a few years ago.
1: I mean, I think that's a perennial question about all the great issues of our time, right? I mean, nobody wants to read stories about climate change. Um, you know, uh, with the Trump presidency, every single action has become... You know, more outrageous than the previous one, and, and so you kind of lose track of of, um, of what are the things you're supposed to be outraged by, and you and this fatigue sort of settles in. Um, I mean, with Syria, obviously the, the issue has been, um, you know, the the fact that the war has gone on for eight years, and and, uh, and it's just vastly more complicated now. Uh, and even when we're talking right now about Idlib, you know, it's um uh, it, it's hard to other than the civilians. I mean, what are the possible solutions you could you could achieve there? There are no really good solutions. Um, you know, civilians are the ones who are getting, um, you know, who are who are losing out and, and who are dying and, and who are being injured. Uh, but at the same time, you're sitting there and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, the the part of the country that is coming under attack now uh, is under the control of extremists, and so it's like a choice between extremists and the totalitarian Assad regime, right? So I think it's it's a combination of the fact that the war has gone on for very long and. Uh, and there are no good options. You know, nobody sees a, a, a good way out. Um, I don't think there's that much to do other than watch things unfold. Now, um, I think if, if uh, international actors cared enough to intervene in, in the past, they would have. Um, but uh, but I think we've uh, you know we've come to understand that that's not going to happen even when the worst atrocities occur, like chemical weapons attacks. Uh, so all we can do is just keep bearing witness. I think.
0: In the face of eight years of brutal conflict that's killed so many people, it's hard to engage readers in the news of yet another doomsday-like offensive.
1: I think the, the challenge with Syria and the thing that we forget is that Syria is the most well-documented war um, that has ever uh, you know, been covered by, by journalists and, um, and that has ever taken place really in human history. Um, and so we sort of, I mean, there's no way we can say we didn't know. Uh, there's no way we can say we didn't see what happened, or, or you know, we didn't know what happened. And so I think, to a certain extent, um, it, it says a lot about our capacity to um, to empathize with with causes outside of our immediate experience. Um, I think it sort of it says more, it's an indicator of the limits of human empathy to a certain extent, um, and also because uh, you know, in the course of covering the human elements of the war. Um, we, we couldn't help but sort of delve into uh, the, the other more emotive things that uh, that captured international attention. You know, uh, stories about ISIS were always going to be vastly more interesting to a global audience um, than the story of, you know, a hospital being bombed in Syria, because um, the way the media covered attacks by ISIS, um, you know, indicated that this was a danger that could uh, reach its tentacles to, to the heart of Europe, right? Um, if you know, if you're watching a hustle being bombed in Syria, this did not necessarily mean anything to you as somebody who lived in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. But if, uh, you know, but if you watched uh, ISIS beheading a journalist um, in Raqqa, um, you could conceivably see the danger, um, you know, re-emerging where you live.
0: So what can be done? The answer, simply, is very little. The United Nations, the United States, Europe and dozens of other countries around the world have been pushing for years for an end to the fighting. The regime and its backers rarely listen. The man with the power to avert another catastrophe is probably Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. He's overseen the Astana peace talks, but he's also an active participant in the conflict. And so he doesn't look set to stop the fighting.
1: I think the, the, the clear legacy that we have from, from the UN is that, um, is that the UN does not have the capacity to um, hold any countries to account uh, in terms of, their international conduct and the way they carry out warfare, and, um, and that's because, you know, with the, with the members of the UN so hopelessly divided, you can't really get anything done in the UN. Um, you know, the UN has repeatedly called for uh, humanitarian access, for delivery of humanitarian aid, for lifting of sieges, uh, for an end to chemical weapons attacks, for an end to all the abuses um, of the war on, on, on both sides, and none of that has, has actually happened. The UN actually did a uh, uh, actually managed to pass a Security Council resolution um, when the Eastern Ghouta campaign was uh, was launched uh, to you know uh, for a 30-day ceasefire and to lift uh, uh, the the siege and, and deliver humanitarian aid um, and which Russia then after passing it proceeded to just decide that well we're actually going to continue bombing Eastern Ghouta and we're going to um, have our own sort of humanitarian initiative where we're going to. Uh, Allow people to leave the area uh, for five hours every day. Um, So, so essentially, the UN has been useless in terms of um, governing uh, how the the powers that be conduct the war in Syria. Uh, Now, that said, right now uh, there's there are only so many other options, um, uh, you know, outside of the UN uh, to uh, to reach some sort of peace out. Uh, You know, there are possible ways forward. Uh, For example. Um, you know, talks under the auspices of the UN can take place with the sponsorship of European powers uh, because they still hold the cards in terms of reconstruction money. Uh, While the regime has won, it doesn't have uh, the budget. Neither it nor Russia nor Iran have the budget to rebuild Syria. And they need, um, you know, to be an accepted part of the international community again. They need the influx of aid money. and, And this is an opportunity for the UN uh, to come together with European countries to uh, figure out a possible roadmap uh, for, uh, you know, reforms, uh, possible, um, uh, you know, concessions by the regime in exchange for, um, you know, either reconstruction aid money or um, some sort of diplomatic recognition. I, I'm not saying that that's what should happen, uh, but that's where they should be thinking right now because the regime has won. Um, there are very few alternatives in terms of, um, you know, ending the fighting. Uh, and, um, and you know, the UN is best place to be the party that oversees um, such negotiations.
0: And in all of this, um, Bashar al-Assad, he's staying put?
1: Pretty much. Um, there is uh, there's absolutely no reason for him to, um, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody holds enough leverage to demand that he step aside um, that is simply uh, outside of the realm of the possible at the moment
0: thanks this week to kareem shaheen and Zahir al this was beyond the headlines subscribe on apple podcast or any of your favorite podcasting apps i've been your host james haynes young